invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Timothy 1. Last week we uh, had our book sermon on 2 Timothy, let you know a little bit of the direction that we're going. And of course that word that we used, that we focused on, that we centered our, our thoughts on was that word faithful, right? Be faithful, Christian. Faithfulness. Paul is going to be calling Timothy as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ unto faithfulness, to stir up to remembrance, to stir up within him a, a regard for his ministry, a need to be faithful. So it is that we find ourselves some five years removed from Paul's writing of the first epistle to Timothy. We believe Paul likely, as I said last week, returned to Ephesus after he was released from house arrest by way of Troas to see Timothy. In Troas, he left those books and those parchments uh, that he asks for at the end of this epistle with Carpus. Then to Crete, where Paul would leave Titus, would later write to him that epistle to Titus. Then to Miletus, Corinth. We would understand that from 2 Timothy 4, verse 20, and then from there to Nicopolis, of which we learn about in Titus chapter 3, verse 12, after which Paul, we would presume, was arrested perhaps in Nicopolis and taken to Rome to stand trial before Nero, in part, one might believe, on the trumped-up charges that Christians had conspired to burn the city of Rome. Timothy very likely remained in Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla and the household of Onesiphorus in this time. As was characteristic of Paul's epistles, he gives here an introduction. Typically, the introduction gives us a measure of insight into the nature of the epistle. It will be no different with this one. Uh, we'll get there next week. He also establishes within his introduction, typically speaking, the authority by which he is writing and unto whom he is writing, namely, uh, the authority of Jesus Christ delegated to him as a chosen apostle of Jesus Christ. No different in 2 Timothy, where we read this beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul declares himself here an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he declares himself this by the will of God, both remembering and perhaps reminding the reader that Paul has not chosen himself unto this ministry. He has not chosen himself unto this authority. And he's going to remind Timothy of that as well next week and uh, various times throughout the epistle that Timothy is called, that he is called, that when a man steps into ministry, and there's disagreement about this among ministers as it relates to these things, but within my, the scope of my experience and my understanding as it relates to me, I was called. I knew that this was the direction I needed to go in. And I believe that, Tim, that, that Paul was appealing to the fact that Timothy knew as well as Paul knew that he was called. And notice here, consistent with what we find throughout the New and Old Testament, as we mentioned last week, that God choosing them to this task, that, that God calls who he will unto the purposes he chooses. And as we stated last week, God is not calling Timothy or Paul unto a state. He's calling them unto a purpose, right? He's not calling them unto a condition. He has not chosen them to be a condition. He has chosen them to have a purpose. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. We will get to a message probably as we, as we work ourselves into 2 Timothy 2, where we speak about the nature of election and predestination and what it means 
and what it doesn't, what we understand from the Word of God in relation to it, and, and then what has then happened in our, particularly in our time within the church today, where the concepts of election and predestination and foreordination have, have been heightened to something that they are not. They have been taken beyond their biblical bounds and have become, they've gone from being biblical to being theological. <laughs> and uh, the, theology is not necessarily a bad thing, but there are certain things that when they go from being biblical to being theological, they cross beyond the bound of what is biblical authority and they go into the bounds of man's ideas. And that has happened very strongly with the concept of election, predestination, and we'll be getting there. But, but we find here a consistency that, that Paul is called by the will of God and he's called unto a, a purpose, which is to be this minister and to have this authority. More than this, we find here Paul reflecting the grace of God in both choosing him and empowering him for the ministry that he has been given. Paul was keenly aware of the blessing that God had bestowed upon him. Which is interesting, right? Paul is in prison here. He has suffered much. And as, we'll, as we walked through the book uh, sermon last week, as we walked through the epistle, we find that he does not have the same hope of getting out this time that he had in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he's writing, and he says, I hope to see you again. In Philippians, he's writing and saying, I hope to see you again. Right? We particularly see that in the prison epistles. In Philippians, Paul telling the church of Philippi, I want to I want to depart and be with the Lord, but to remain is more needful for you. I hope and expect to see you again. In this particular epistle, he's far more resigned to him coming to the end of his course. And yet for all of this, he's joyful. In echoing Paul's words of longing and desire in Philippians 3, he has been blessed to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And he would desire to know it even more. And this spirit is intended to undergird Paul's exhortations unto Timothy. In our book sermon last week, we contemplated the theme of faithfulness, Timothy's faithfulness in ministry. And as Paul seeks to establish the foundation of this theme, he reflects upon his own calling, and he's humbled by it. God did not need to use him, but God did choose to use him. God does not need to use me, but God does choose to use me. God does not need to use you, but God does choose to use you. Now, to the unbeliever, this is kind of a terrifying thing, that we would be rejoicing in being used, right? That we would delight in setting uh, our own goals aside in order that we might find the goals, the purpose of the God of all flesh, and align ourselves with the work that he's chosen to do through me. As Paul would say in Philippians, that to the adversaries of the cross, our submission is an evident token of our perdition. Right? The fact that we rejoice in suffering even, if it may be that God might use that suffering, the fact that we are happy wherever God has put us, whether that's in much or in, in, in little, whether that's in, in, in circumstances of happiness or circumstances of sorrow, we rejoice because we want to be used by God. We set ourselves aside in order that we might be a vessel through whom God might work. We sing that song, channels only, right? The idea of that song is, Lord, I'm only a channel. 
I am only a conduit through which the Holy Spirit of God works. I'm not the water, I'm the pipe. Right? I am a pipe to get the Spirit of God from one place to another. I am a conduit through which God can minister. And the world looks at that and says, you're completely cowed. You are, you, you are completely uh, you, 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 are, you are completely stuck as, as nothing more than a tool. And we say, wow, if only I could be used by God in that way. The unbelieving world cannot understand this. We'll talk more about that next week. But to we who are in Christ, this is our joy. This is our joy. To we who are in Christ, our joy. When I, when I can look back on a day and see how God used me, that's joy. When I can contemplate setting aside my own time and my own labors and, and, and setting aside my own priorities for the Lord and what the Lord might be able to do with me if only I would be yielded, that is joy. That's our purpose. That's our function. It's what we have been created to do. And we considered last week in our evening sermon in Philippians the mindset that Paul carried into ministry found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Paul would write there, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul knew his redemption to be an outworking of the grace of God upon him, not of his own doing, not of his own efforts, not of his own worthiness. And this compelled Paul he says, because God has done all of this for me, I'm going to be a good steward. You might liken this um, uh, to, to someone who's given you a great gift. And you say, well, because they've given me a great gift, I'm going to be a good steward of that gift. I'm going to take care of it. You know, someone uh, gives you something and you say, I'm going to take care of it because it was given to me. It was a gift to me. And so I'm going to treat it well. I'm going to treat it properly. I'm going to, to, to uh, um, um, be very careful with it. I'm going to, to, to use it in a manner that is befitting. I'm going to keep it in good condition. I'm going to keep it repaired and such because it's such a blessing to have it. And yet Paul then goes on to say that though he will work so hard that the gift that was given to him, redemption through Jesus Christ, would not be in vain, that, his, that, that if we can put it this way, grace would not be wasted on him. He labors more abundantly, he says, than any he throws himself wholesale into the ministry of the gospel. He gives everything he has for the sake of the ministry. But even in this, Paul says, it is only the grace of God that even gives me the ability to, do, to, to walk worthy of my calling. My calling, I'm unworthy of my calling. I'm called to walk worthy of my calling. But I'm only, only through God's grace am I able even to walk worthy of that calling. It's grace from beginning to end. And so it was that God's grace, beginning to end, worked in Paul the strength and enablement to be used by him. So Paul is an apostle by the will of God. And he writes, and he says, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Everything that Paul is about to say, every ounce of your call to be faithful in this life is a call that is given and is understood through the eyes of, the, of, of an understanding of the life that is to come. Again, we talked about this in Philippians last week, last Sunday night, that there is a promise. There are three things that compel us to serve. The first is that it's obedience, right? And that should be enough. 
The second is that there are rewards in heaven. And the third is that there is joy in this life. There's a, 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 an abundance of, of spiritual reward in this life as well. We live in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we live in hope of the life that is to come. Staying in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in our cross-references, Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 to 58. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O, uh, o grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Not one sacrifice in this life, not one element of us having to set ourselves aside that we might be used of God in a more fundamental manner is wasted. Because the promise of life, because death is swallowed up in victory, so death has no sting, the grave has no victory, the things of this earth lose their appeal, because there's coming a day when that victory will be mine. And the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, Romans 8.18. And I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has come into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love him, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. And it is this promise that both compels Paul not just to live, but also compels him to remind Timothy so that Timothy might be reminded that God has chosen him unto a purpose. And to fulfill that purpose is our great joy. Not just in this life, but more specifically unto the promise of the life that is to come. I, I give this illustration semi-regularly because it's one that uh, stuck out so vividly in my mind when my wife and I were both um, down in Florida and we were married and we were driving to our work one day. So we worked together and we saw a truck that was just covered in mud. Just mud from front to back. And my wife looked at that truck and, you know, you could only see through the little windshield wiper. You know, there was the windshield wiper template uh, and, and, and the rest of the windshield was mud and the back windshield was mud. The whole thing was mud. And she looked and said, well, there's a happy truck. And the idea there of that truck being a happy truck, I mean, obviously the truck is an inanimate object. What did my wife mean when she said, there's a happy truck? What she meant by that is there's a truck that has been used unto its purpose, right? It has been used for what it's made for. You see, uh, you know, these trucks that are out there today, and you see that Lincoln makes a truck and whatnot, and you know that that truck is never going to be used for its purpose. A Lincoln truck is never going to be used for its intended purpose. I, I, it is someone who wants a truck and wants a luxury vehicle, but that truck will never actually haul rocks, right? That's never going to happen because that truck is worth more than my house. Not worth 
costs more than my house. Can we put it that way? That, that's a very expensive truck. You don't use a truck like that for work. You use a truck like that for whatever other reason you want a truck if that's not for work. But, but see, a truck, my, when my wife says that's a happy truck, I know what she's saying. What she's saying is that truck is being, in use, for the, is being used for the purpose unto which it was designed, which effectively is to get dirty, right? That's, that's what trucks are for. They're supposed to be dinged. They're supposed to be dirty because that's what, that means the truck is functioning the way it has been designed to function. Now, you carry that into your Christian life. We have a design, right? If we are a new creation in Christ, old things are passed away, all things are become new, 2 Corinthians 5.17, when we are placed into Christ, we are made new, which means we are made a new creation, which means we are given a new function for existence. And we've said it before, we can never be happier than when we are doing what we are designed to do. And that's the idea. Paul wants Timothy to remember that, that as a believer and then as a called minister, God has formed him into something. And his joy, success, both in this life and the life that is to come, will be intrinsically attached to his faithfulness to his calling. Would that you and I would live within this mindset, that we would see our own purpose in Christ saved and called unto this purpose, gifted by God to be used of him, blessed by God to be used of him, that we might bring glory to the one who set us free from the darkness of our own sin, that we might lead others from their own darkness into the light of the grace of God, if by any means we might, when we step from this life into the life that is to come, when we step from mortality into immortality, when we cross that veil into eternal life purchased for us by our Savior Jesus Christ, if by any means we might hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If by any means the promises of the rewards and joys of the life that is to come might be maximized in me. Paul then addresses the letter in verse 2. He says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul calls Timothy here his dearly beloved son. Now we know that he is not speaking to, to Timothy as a blood relative. Paul had no wife. He had no children. Acts 16 tells us that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek father, whereas Paul was a Jew, stating in Philippians chapter 3 that he was of the stock of Israel, that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now he grew up in a Greek area in Tarsus, but he was he was son to Jews. He was the son of a Pharisee, Acts 23, 6 tells us, which means it's not just that his father was Greek and his mother was Jewish, but that he was the son of a Pharisee. And so we know his father was a Jew, which means his father was not Greek, which means Timothy's father is not Paul, right? So we know this from putting all of the pieces together that his father and mother were Jewish. And so we have all confidence that Timothy is not Paul's son by blood, but much the rather, Paul found in Timothy a unique like-mindedness, unlike he had found in any other minister of his acquaintance. And to this end, perhaps saw Timothy's life his ministry and his mindset as the essence of Paul's own spiritual legacy. 
I don't know if you've ever had someone quite like this, where perhaps you have led them to the Lord. Perhaps you weren't the one that led them to the Lord, but you were one who was a part of discipling them, and you just connect in mindset. And they call you and they ask you what your opinion is on things. And you are able to, in a manner of speaking, um, see your image, your spiritual image in their spiritual life. You can see your fingerprints on them. Uh, maximize that idea. And that's probably what we see here with Paul and Timothy. That uh, in, in Paul and Timothy shared a like-mindedness and that Paul, if you can say, where were his fingerprints most evident as it related to his ministry, most likely it would be on Timothy. That if Paul's ministry and mindset were going to pass to the next generation, Timothy would most likely be the guy that was going to carry Paul's legacy into that generation. To this end, Paul loved Timothy dearly and he would testify to this fact many times throughout the epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul would write to Corinth, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So we see Paul there sending Timothy as one who is faithful in the Lord, but who will, who will be, as it were, a, a replica of Paul who will bring into remembrance all those things that Paul wants them to be brought into remembrance, that he would be a good surrogate, a good replacement for Paul, so that Paul could send Timothy somewhere and say, as I send Timothy there, I know I, my authority in Christ, is represented well. He would also say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, For I have no mind like-minded, speaking of Timothy, who would naturally care for your state. Then in verse 22, But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he hath served me, uh, served with me in the gospel. So he has served as a son with his father. And he says here that he has a like-mindedness. First in that Timothy knew the people in Philippi. So there was a like-mindedness there. And second, in the true like-mindedness that they had in ministry. Paul wished Timothy thus grace, mercy, and peace. And I noted this with 1 Timothy as well, but it's perhaps worth noting again. Paul's typical greeting was grace and peace. Grace and peace be with you. Whether at the beginning of the, the epistle, the end of the epistle, or both, it was grace and peace. It is only in the three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that Paul adds mercy into that mix. And indeed, may God have mercy upon we who are called to be his ministers. The Lord knows we need it. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Paul lifts his thanks to God for Timothy explicitly. We see this, uh, this formula as one that's very common in the epistles, that Paul thanks God upon remembrance of certain people. We, we, we're seeing this in Philippians, right? We saw this at the beginning of Philippians, that, God, that Paul thanked God for the Philippian believers upon his remembrance and, and, and specifically for their fellowship in the gospel, right? That being for the degree to which they had explicitly and specifically supported him uh, along his way. 
So he states here in, in regards to Timothy that night and day he remembers Timothy in his prayers. Night and day he intercedes on Timothy's behalf. And night and day he thanks God for the fellowship that they had and have in ministry. Once again, we see this love that Paul has for Timothy in these words and these prayers of thanksgiving, though being not particularly uncommon as it relates to Paul thanking the Lord. Again, I said he did it in Philippians. He also does it to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, ver verse 15, for, for the church in Ephesus. In Philemon, verse 4, um, to Philemon, uh, who uh, was most likely in, I believe, Laodicea. And then to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. It's not a unique thing, but within this greeting, Paul does offer a unique perspective, stating that the God he thanks, the God that he is praying to, is the God whom he has served from his forefathers with pure conscience. And this is interesting. Remember, Paul is a Hebrew. He's a Jewish man. Much of the New Testament, though all of it's written in Greek, has a very Hebrew flavor to it. One of the things that you find in the Old Testament scriptures is that when, a, when the, the scriptures desired to emphasize a certain character of God, uh, they would do so by the, by the name that they called God, right? God has so many names in the Old Testament, and each of those names is related to how it is in that moment that the person that was being ministered to by God related to him. And so Hagar gave him a name. Jacob gave him a name. Abraham gave him a name. He gave himself a name at the burning bush, right? And he did so seeking to relate an aspect of his character to those who were, to, to the hearers. And here, Paul says that this God that he serves is the God whom he had served from his forefathers with a pure conscience. Now, there are a couple of different possibilities for what Paul may be saying here. First, it's possible he's saying that he serves God in a pure conscience, as has the legacy of faithful men and women throughout time. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rahab, the Hall of Faith, right? All of those people and more, as we might walk through the, the list in Hebrews 11, reflecting thus upon the spiritual legacy of which he is a part of by means of faith, spanning each generation from the beginning of creation and outside of any particular context, I would think this to be the meaning. However, it's also possible that Paul is being more specific. And that's because of the, the uniqueness of the context within which we find it here in 2 Timothy and where Paul is going to go with this thanksgiving. Within this context, leading up to verse 5, some also believe that what Paul is actually highlighting is that there is an immediate legacy of faith from which he springs. That his father and mother were faithful. That his father's father had been faithful. Yes, he's the son of a Pharisee. But there were any number of Pharisees who were faithful, who did believe. We know from the New Testament scriptures that many Pharisees believed. And so it's possible that Paul is speaking here to his direct lineage, that he comes from a faithful line, that though it was not necessarily as natural of a transition for Saul into faith as he was breathing out threatenings against the church 
on his way to Damascus, and the Lord had to uh, confront him uh, personally. Yet it is possible that Paul is referencing the fact that he had a family that had served God with a pure conscience from generation to generation, so that his father as a Pharisee was not serving the law, as many of the Pharisees were, but was truly serving God. And again, we see this. Nicodemus was one of these, right? He comes to the Lord by night and he says, Master, I know that the things you're saying come from God, but I'm confused. How can these things be, right? Here was a man who was of the Pharisees, and yet he was a Pharisee because he loved God, he was not a Pharisee because he loved himself, as many of the other Pharisees and scribes were. He was not there seeking power. He was there seeking the Lord. And so it's possible that Paul is saying this as well. Paul's father, being a Pharisee of true faith, perhaps, believed uh, um, in their time in, in, in the Lord. Of course, whether or not he believed on Jesus, we don't know when his father died and such. We don't know any of those things. Uh, it's also possible that there were others from his family who had believed not just himself. Paul would write this at the end of Romans chapter 6, in Rome, uh, excuse me, Romans 16. In Romans 16, he says in verse 7, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Verse 21, he says, Timotheus, my workfellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen, salute you. Paul speaks here of a man named uh, Andronicus and a woman named Junia, whom he says are his kinsmen, that word simply meaning relative. And again, we see this word kinsmen used in verse 21, speaking of several men, and he calls them his kinsmen. Paul would use this word in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, to speak of all of the nation of Israel, so it's not necessarily talking about being related very closely, like a cousin or a sister or a brother. It could simply mean blood relation as it, as it would speak to the broader context of the nation of Israel and how they're all blood-related through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But this also does, in some senses, seem out of place at the end of Romans. Paul has spoken to Jews from the very beginning, right? In chapter 2, he says, you Jew, you call yourself a Jew, you, 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 you have the oracles of God, and yet you see the Gentiles who have the law of God written on their hearts. And so he's been contrasting, comparing and contrasting the Jews and the Gentiles throughout the book. And so, recognizing that perhaps many Jews live in Rome, and recognizing that every single name of each of these Jews, if they are Jews that he spoke of, have Greek names, um, it's quite possible that he's also speaking of some actual kinsmen people related to him who had been in Christ before him. Not quite sure one way or another, but one way or another, it's very possible that Paul is not the only of his family that, were, that has been saved, and that's the idea, right? Whether or not Paul speaks of his direct family here or not, simply of the legacy of the faithful throughout the generations, as Paul continues his account, his prayer and his love for Timothy in verse 4, he says this, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Paul reflects upon his fellowship with Timothy, and he tells him that he greatly desires to see him, that he may be filled with joy. And this, he says, being mindful of thy, or Timothy's, tears. 
we might assume that this is speaking of the last time that Paul saw him, that their departing was with tears, knowing that it may, may very well have been the last time that they saw each other. And so Paul says, I desire to see you, that I may be filled with joy, because I remember that when you left, we were very sorrowful. And it would give me great joy to see you again. I know it would give you great joy to see me again. So to that end, of course, he desires to see him. And this leads to verse 5. Say, Pastor, I, 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 don't really, I'm not on, I, I don't really get why you might even surmise that um, Paul was speaking of his, his parents when he, said, when he talked about uh, how he had served God with a pure conscience from his father's. Well, the reason why we might go that route in interpretation is because of verse 5. Paul says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. What Paul is saying in these three verses, it would seem, verses 3, 4, and 5, is that he longs for the companionship of Timothy's unfeigned faith. He remembers the last time they were together, when they parted with tears, knowing it might be the last time. He is in prison again. He is soon to be martyred. And yet, to see the face of his friend one last time would give him great joy. And this is his request, that Timothy would come see him one last time before he dies. We'll see that in 2 Timothy 4. And as Paul contemplates the faith of Timothy, and he contemplates his own faith, and he contemplates how it is that Timothy is as his son, that his faith would be passed down into the next generation through Timothy, that got him to thinking about his own legacy. And this is where this interpretation might come in, that there was a legacy of faith in his life, someone who passed the faith to him. You say, well, pastor, that doesn't really make sense. He was saved on the road to Damascus. Yes, but when, when he was confronted, he submitted, didn't he? Other Pharisees saw Lazarus rise from the dead, and what did they say? Let's kill him, right? They didn't, they didn't believe when Lazarus rose from the dead. They didn't believe when the tomb was empty. But Paul when he was confronted, believed. And he's thinking back to his legacy of, uh, of those who had passed the faith down from generation to generation, whether perhaps his mother and father, or whether simply perhaps Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the faithful throughout time. And he realizes that he is one of a string of those who have believed. And then he thinks towards Timothy's case. And there's absolutely no ambiguity in Paul's thoughts toward Timothy, right? Timothy carries a legacy of bloodline faith. Not that the bloodline caused the faith, but his grandmother and his mother and him. Presumably not his father, but his grandmother and his mother. That there was a passing down of the faith from generation to generation. And Paul is confident that this faith continued in Timothy. And so here Paul is linking in his mind Two different concepts. Timothy, your grandmother had faith and your mother had faith and they passed it on to you and you are carrying on their legacy. But Timothy, you're also carrying on my legacy. I'm not your father, 
but I am your father in the faith. You're carrying on the legacy of your family, but you're also carrying on the legacy of my family. You're carrying on the legacy of the believer, and you're carrying on the legacy of the minister. And this leads us to our application today. We take this opportunity to recall to our own minds a remembrance of the faith. Salvation is a very personal thing. For we who are in Christ, you perhaps remember when you realized that you were a sinner and you were in need of a Savior. And the first call this morning in our time of application is this. Remember the legacy of the faithful. You understood at some point the separation between you and God. And you came to realize that there was no way that you could in yourself earn, be worthy of, or forge in yourself a relationship with God. That you were separated from God through your sin. Your sin was there. It was ever before you. You couldn't undo what you have already done. You can't dig yourself out of the hole that you've already dug yourself into. And then you heard about Jesus. In this state where you realize that there's no way you could make yourself worthy of forgiveness or buy a relationship with God or earn a relationship with God, you heard about Jesus, God with us, born of a young virgin, lived a sinless life, and died a sinner's death, and rose victoriously from the grave. And you heard about how his death paid for your sin so that you could be forgiven. And you heard about how his resurrection charted the course to eternal life for all who would be forgiven. And you understood that all who will come to Christ, all who will turn from any and every other confidence that they may have in their life and place their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ's death alone would be saved from their sin and would be given eternal life. You heard the gospel for how can they believe in him in whom they have not heard. And you submitted to that gospel for how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And you were born again, and you were made a new creation in Christ. And you were, as you were born again and made a new creation in Christ, old things were passed away and all things had become new. And this is all very personal. You may have received Christ at the same time as others, but this was a very personal transaction between you and God. Maybe the preacher that day, how can they hear without a preacher, right? Maybe the preacher that day was your family member, father, mother, sibling. Maybe the preacher on that day was actually a pastor or a friend or a church member. But when it came down to it, your salvation was about your relationship with God, me and God, right? That's, that's what judgment is going to look like. It's not going to be you and your pastor and God standing up there together, and your pastor's going to work on trying to convince God that you're a pretty good person. It's not going to be like that. It's you and it's God, right? And it's Jesus Christ, either there, between, or not. And yet, the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether or not anyone around you was a believer or even ever will be, you became a, a part of a community of men and women going all the way back to the beginning of creation. You joined the ranks of the faithful. You joined the family of God. The legacy of those who love the Lord. We spoke of this 
last Sunday night, but let's think about it again. Remember the legacy of Abraham, who left the land of his fathers because he believed the promises of God. Remember the legacy of Moses, who esteemed the reproach of Christ of greater riches than all of the treasures of Egypt. Remember the legacy of Rahab, who hid the spies of Israel, knowing that only God could save her from the fate that would inevitably come to Jericho. Remember the legacy of Ruth, who took Naomi's people to be her people and Naomi's God to be her God. Remember the legacy of David, who knew the God of Israel to be greater than any man or any nation. Remember the legacy of the prophets who suffered and were tormented and tortured and killed for the word of the Lord. Remember the legacy of Hananiah, of Azariah, and of Mishael, who refused to bow to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had put up, who refused to serve his gods, who refused to, do, to serve any but the God of heaven. Remember the legacy of Daniel, who would not cease to worship and to pray to God in spite of the king's commandment. Remember the legacy of John the Baptist as a voice crying in the wilderness to proclaim Messiah. Remember the legacy of the apostles, most of whom would die martyrs' deaths. Remember the legacy of those who had those trials of mockings and of scourgings and of bonds and of imprisonments being stoned and sawn asunder and tempted and slain with the sword and destitute and afflicted and tormented for their faith. Our forefathers and mothers have not done these things because it was convenient for them. They did not do these things because it was compelling. They did it because they knew, as we know by faith, that God's word is true. Remember that. Remember what it is that drew you into this faith. Remember how, how you knew, as you know, that it is true. That there is nothing in this world that is worth losing the things of the world to come that there's nothing this world can offer that can compare with the promises that rest with those that love God. Remember that. Stir that up within you. Remember the day that we counted God faithful who had promised these things. And we entered into this family. We entered into this legacy. And for many of us, as it was with Timothy, not all of us to be sure, but for, for many of us, that legacy does strike closer to home, doesn't it? You didn't just learn faith from the writings of Paul, Peter, and the prophets. For many of you, you learned that faith from your parents, your grandparents. You watched as they loved their enemies, as they blessed them that cursed, as they did good to them that hated, as they prayed for them which used them. You watched as they responded in faith to various crises, and did not collapse under the weight of the fears of the unknown. You watched as they loved you, and they loved one another, and they loved their neighbors as themselves. You watched as they shared the gospel and prayed for those who needed it the most. You listened to their prayers for sinners, to their prayers for saints, to their prayers for those in need of healing, for their prayers to those in need of guidance. You, you heard in their voices their faith. You saw the results of prayer. You saw them count the things of this world as nothing, that they may gain the things of the world to come. They taught you to love as Christ loved, to forgive as Christ forgave. You knew the faith was real because it was unmistakable before your very eyes. 
And when you read of the faith of the men and women in this book, that faith was already very familiar to you. You read Hebrews 11 as you got older, as you worked yourself into those teen years when you're really starting to comprehend more of the things that the Word of God is saying. And as you read of those men and women of faith in the Old Testament and the New, as you read of Jonathan and his armor bearer, as you read of David against Goliath, as you read of Rahab the harlot, as you read of Ruth, as you read of the Proverbs 31 woman, as you read of Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, it was undeniably familiar to you already because you had already seen that faith. You not necessarily knew all the ins and outs of any of those individual accounts as you read and as you learned, but you'd seen it before because you'd seen it in your parents, because you'd seen it in your grandparents. And if that is you today, don't forget that legacy. Be thankful for that legacy. It's so rare, by the way. You are one of the blessed if you have that legacy. And for all of us today, whether or not your entrance into this legacy of faith follows the bloodline of men and women who have set the example, each of us should long for that legacy to now persevere in us so that our children will have an undeniable relatability to the faith through us, so that our grandchildren will have an undeniable relatability to faith through us. and that they might be able to remember the legacy of the faithful through us. And that brings us to our next point. As you think back, whether you can think back to mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, or you, or you can't, you can think back to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David, to Solomon, to Joseph and Mary, to Paul, to Timothy. You can, you can trace that legacy that lineage, and thus be compelled, number two, to continue it. As I walk through the names of men and women in the scriptures who bore these marks of faith, many of these, of course, drawing from Hebrews 11, remember that Hebrews 11 is one chapter of a much larger book, right? And the next chapter after Hebrews chapter 11 is, naturally, Hebrews 12. And Hebrews 12, the beginning of Hebrews 12, places a definitive call upon the lives of those who share in this legacy. You look back at all of those who have gone before us, at those who have kept the faith. We live in the shadow of those men and women who have gone before us. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about by, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the, every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I'm a Christian. A name meaning little Christ, right? It was given to the believers at, first at Antioch intended as a derogatory slight on them, but worn by them and the generations that would follow as a badge of honor. I stand in the company of men and women who have lived their lives with spiritual distinction. Some have died deaths of infamy and shame. Some have lived to see, uh, th then, then to, to pass in peace, to see their 
Lord and glory. And God forbid that I should bring any sort of shame to the legacy of the faithful. God forbid that I should fail to live up to the name of Jesus Christ who died for me and for whose name so many have suffered and died as well. I will carry on that legacy because it's a legacy of truth in the midst of a world of darkness. It is a legacy of spiritual power against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. And this compels me to fight the fight of faith, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to put on the whole armor of God that I might stand in the day of trial and in the day of temptation and having done all to stand. This was the stage that Paul was setting for Timothy on this day. This was why Timothy brought up his family. This is why Timothy brought up this, uh, uh, um, Paul brought up Timothy's family. This is why Paul brought up this legacy, his legacy of faith, his family's legacy of faith, so that he would not just remember the legacy of his grandmother and mother, not just remember the faith of Paul, but that he would continue it in his own life. And then finally, as we'll see as we go through 2 Timothy, not just that we would remember the legacy of the faithful and that we would continue, that we would live up to that legacy, but then that we would be determined to pass it on, to pass on the legacy of the faithful. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, Jesus said. Literally translated, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. This is our great commission, is it not? That the things which we have heard we would commit to others. We'll talk about that in chapter 2. That we would not hide our light under a bushel, but put it on a candlestick, that it may give light to all that are in the house. That our children would know what it is to have faith that our communities would know what it is to have faith, not know what it is to be religious, not know what it is to know what the Bible says, not know what it is to enjoy a faith community, but know what it is to have faith. Now, all those other things are fine, but what we want to pass along, what we want our community to know about us, what we want our children to know about us is the inevitable and incontrovertible proof of faith. That we may see our children into the next generation of the faithful. That they may go through the same process. That my children might remember the legacy of the faithful and think of me and think of their grandparents and think of their great-grandparents, thank the Lord that they can then be compelled to continue in those things which they have learned. And that I might have the joy of seeing them determined to pass down the legacy of the faithful to their children, that my grandchildren, that my children's children's children might also know the faith. And that those who are thirsty around us, those who recognize that there's something missing, might see in me an authenticity, might see in my faith the reality of God so clearly 
that they will come and take of those waters of life freely. We do not exist just to live. We exist to tell. This is the legacy of the faithful. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before, who contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We continue in this legacy being faithful, holding the line, standing in the evil day, and we live in this manner that we may tell that others may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven, that our children may know that what we believe is not simply a tradition passed from generation to generation, but it is the truth of God, the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth, the legacy of the faithful that has been passed down from generation to generation, that if we were able to trace it, would find its way all the way back to our very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that, when all is said and done, and the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And the heavens have passed away with a great noise. And the elements melt with a fervent heat. And the earth and the works that are therein are burned up. That on that day when our faith is made sight, that on, the only things that will remain, and the only things that matter being those things that are done in faith, that we would have a great deal that remains on that day. And we believe this, so we live it. And we live it, and we tell, so that others might come into it as well. And that's the legacy of the faithful. May that be our legacy as well. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.